Happy Easter. Christ is risen. It's the best day of the year. It's very exciting. Christ is risen. Happy Easter. It's time to come back. Well done on making it back. I officially announce the pandemic is over. And we're all back. All right, okay. <laughs> okay. So Easter is that really important time of year where we remember what Christ has accomplished in helping children get more sugar. As one of the, but he wasn't big on refined sugar, Jesus, although he did like carbs, right? So Jesus said he was the bread of life. He multiplied bread to people. So we can safely assume that bread was, I think, one of Jesus' favorite foods. But because of Easter, we can assume also that eggs must take a second close place. That eggs must also be a big deal to Jesus. And this reveals a great theological insight for us. That the most divine food, that the holiest food you could ever eat is French toast. Thank you. <laughs> Just warming up for Father's Day with the, the dad jokes. Okay, so I'm going to be preaching from First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 in just a minute. But we're starting today, we're starting this series called Secrets, and we do this uh, once a year where we like to tell the stories of some of our church members and some of the struggles that they face, their, their ups and downs in life and their faith in Christ. And the purpose of this is to look at kind of the, the human struggles that we face as people, but then turn to God's Word and say, what does God's Word teach us about this? And so we're going to go do this over four weeks. We're taking a, a quick break from our Nehemiah series. We'll get back to that after Secrets. And today we're starting with Marina's Secret. Marina's a beloved person in our church. Where's Marina? She's around us somewhere. She's hiding. She's hiding. She's right here. And it's about a 10 or 11 minute uh, video that we're going to be watching. Next week, we're going to do uh, Greg. We have Greg's secret and PG-13 warning for next week. So parents, uh, just to know the subject matter is a little more sensitive, but don't let that put you off. I think, you know, real young kids, it's going to go over their heads mostly, but um, these are important topics that we have to face, and uh, so it might actually be a good opportunity for some families as well to look at that. And then, as Cole mentioned, the fourth and final week of Secrets will be Mother's Day, so please come dressed up and get a picture with or for your mom or a mother figure in your life. So without further delay, let's go ahead and roll with Marina's video, and then I'll be preaching from God's Word. God's people and God's family are the strongest is when they acknowledge those weaknesses and hold each other accountable and lift each other up in that way. I'd say the earliest I could possibly go back is age eight when I accepted Christ. That was the year 2000, Y2K. Everything was happening, um, including my parents' divorce at the time, unbeknownst to me. So these conversations are happening, these agreements are being made, I come to Christ through Vacation Bible School, and you know, my mom is elated, my dad is not so much. <laughs> um, I would just say, you know, more like impassive on it. And that really does kind of summarize my relationship with my parents. My mom has really been more focused on 
my spiritual growth and development. And right around the time that I became a Christian, she also like formally became a Christian. She had, you know, maybe called herself a cultural Christian growing up in the black church for decades, you know. And then she finally decided, this is my choice. This is my faith. This is my walk with the Lord. And so having that you know, relationship with my mom and then also like being a daddy's daughter at the same time, but not having that same spiritual emphasis, I would say is a bedrock foundation of how I grew up and became an adult. Um, always searching for that love and acceptance, but always trying to put on the right kind of face, right kind of attitude, right kind of self to win that affection. So right around, you know, a couple years after my parents divorced, um, I was in my early teens, like really middle school years. And he kind of moved back uh, to Chicago because he had been away uh, working, finding work. And uh, he, you know, resurfaced in my life, wanted to really kind of just spend time with me and my younger siblings. I have two, a brother and a sister. Um, so it was the three of us um, getting to spend every other weekend with him. And for me, it was never enough. I would spend these 48 hours with him and just be full of regret. And in that time, you know, trying to get as much as possible out of the experience, um, trying to get the best grades possible, trying to to be the most interesting child in the world, if you can think about it. Just trying to, to really make myself, you know, worthy of his time. And it got to a point in my early teens going into high school that I realized I would never be quite worthy. Um, it was more of me coming to the point that my relationship with him could look nothing like my relationship with God. I cannot have a transact transactional relationship with God because the way Christ died for our sins, died for me, reconciled, you know, all of my sins on the cross, the, the price was death. And I would essentially have to pay with my life to have that kind of relationship. Um, and right around, you know, early high school, he decides that he wants to, you know, start dating again, see these other women. And having these other women, you know, in the house, um, you know, knowing that they were there, knowing that they were spending basically more time with him than I would ever get to spend with him was, <laughs> let's just say the seed of bitterness was planted. And it got to a point where I was so cynical in my teens where I'm like, you know, adults, man, why are they so hypocritical? Why do they put all this pressure on us, on me to succeed? and do right when they won't do right. Um, it turns out that, you know, my dad 
started dating somebody that was close to our family um, caused a whole schism on one side of my family. Couldn't even speak to my cousins for a whole period of time. And they decided to get married on uh, my 18th year. Um, and shortly after I graduated high school, they invited me on their honeymoon to the Grand Canyon uh, with all the other kids because she had two boys and then there was me, my brother and my sister and I refused. I, it put me over the top. In fact, I cut off all my hair. Um, it was considerably longer and I kind of, you know, harken back to some of those Bible stories where they're like, yep, shaved, shaved their head, put dust in ashes. Um, so when they came back from that, from that honeymoon, I had completely short hair. Um, I was, I was into that period that I call becoming a formidable woman. And I wanted to get to a point where nobody could hurt me. I wanted to get to a point where I depended on nobody's relationships, affection, approval to feel like I had value. And so I went into college like this, you know, trying to become a formidable woman. Um, I took paracombatives to jutsu as um, an uh, extracurricular activity. So I learned everything from joint locking and chokes and throws to like how to defend myself in case of uh, an emergency or situation, um, how to read the room and, and read body language. And, you know, all this time too, I was putting up fences around myself. I was putting up defenses with it didn't matter um, if they were male or female. Any relationship that I had, I would put up this facade of, there's a part of me that you can't penetrate, but the part that I'm showing you is infallible. You can't break me. And I went through college like this. I went through you know, my time in Japan. That was my first job out of, out of college. I went through Japan like that for two years. Um, and it got to a point where I would start asking myself these extremely difficult questions. Like, who are you? Can these people even see who you are? And if they don't know who the real you is, are you, do you really have a relationship with them? And that single like thought <laughs> almost blew a hole in every relationship I had formed up until that point, starting with the foundation of my father. And so, you know, as, as the Lord would have it, I um, dated someone in graduate school who was almost exactly like my father. And they say, like, girls do this all the time. Um, it wasn't until it hit me that I was like, oh, why, <laughs> why? Why? And the Lord was showing me something though. He was showing me about how much it took for us to be reconciled to him. How we come as completely imperfect and have, you know, these, these sins and these stains and it's like, wow, but he still 
values us, shows himself to us when we ask. And, you know, there is a filter so that we don't die and keel over, you know, like <laughs> there, there is that filter so that we don't experience the full on glory of God and, you know, cease to exist because, you know, that is the sum of his majesty. But when he, you know, shows himself to Moses, when he, you know, when he walked with Enoch, when he showed himself, you know, as the angel of God, you know, speaking to Abraham, and when he walked among men as Jesus, there was this kind of unfiltered tenderness and vulnerability to the point where he let himself be crucified. And, you know, having gone through a horrible breakup <laughs> with a relationship that lasted no more than six weeks, I realized that I was not going to be able to have any relationship, whether it was friendships with women or a future relationship, you know, with men, brothers in Christ even, until I conquered this, this specter of the relationship with my father. And that meant coming to terms with forgiveness. That meant actually putting in healthy boundaries. That meant praying for him. That meant coming to the end of myself and basically saying, I'm not going to, you know, code switch anymore when it comes to God's people. I'm not gonna spirit switch, if you will. I am going to lay it all out there. All of my weaknesses, all of my vulnerabilities, and, you know, if someone gets blessed through this, then I can say that, you know, God was using me through that. And me getting to be the vessel is part of him showing love. God's people. Thank you, Marina. It's gotta be awkward to watch yourself on video, but well done. That was really, really powerful. Thank you so much. Let's uh, pray, and then uh, let's turn to God's Word. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you that you have risen uh, from the grave and defeated uh, Satan's sin and death. And uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for um, Marina's testimony, all the work of grace in her life and everything that she shared. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that your Word be illuminated to us uh, today and uh, that uh, we would be filled with your power and that you would transform us and that we would go from this place as different people and that if anyone is far from you today, that you would draw them close to you with that tenderness that Marina talked of. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, just one verse today. Peter, the apostle Peter writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is God's word. I'm going to read it again because it's so good. Listen up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is God's Word. The Apostle Peter wrote these words a couple of thousand years ago. He was a fisherman who Jesus approached and called to be one of his followers and ended up being one of the closest uh, disciples that Jesus had. And Peter wants us to know that uh, we should bless God, bless God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he starts in this first part of this verse, to bless God. What does it mean to bless God? To bless God means to enjoy Him, to celebrate Him, to make much of Him, to be grateful to Him. That's what it means to bless God. And so Christians, we get together and we love singing songs, don't we? We're known, Christians are known for singing, we sing a lot of songs. Some people don't like it. Some people come to church and they're twiddling their thumbs thinking, when will these Christians stop singing all these songs? It just lasts so long, it's so boring, what are they doing? Well, people haven't figured out yet that the reason we love to sing songs to our Father in heaven is because we've discovered there's no joy, there's no experience, there's nothing great, there's no greater feeling than, in, than celebrating not just goodness, because you want to celebrate all the things that are good, but celebrating the source of all goodness, the person of all goodness, the creator of all things. We're told time and again throughout the Bible that God is our Father. It's mentioned here, blessed be God, our Father. Also, it mentions Jesus Christ, so we're talking about the Son. It also says in this verse that we are born again, and we learn in other parts of the Bible that we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And so we see this Trinitarian teaching coming through, right? This Trinitarian understanding that God is three people in one. It's confusing. Most Christians don't understand it. I still don't understand it, but it's true, and it's a wonderful, glorious thing. God's kind of like a, a spiritual Swiss Army knife, if you will. That's probably heretical to say that, but it's a joke, so get over it. So this, this is the foundation of all things, that God is uncreated. God, uh, everything that comes after God, everything that is created is contingent upon this uncreated eternal being who is three people in one, perfectly harmonious, relating, caring, loving, sharing community in himself for eternity, forever. And from this value, all other things come. So everything else is contingent upon God, but also everything, everything reflects God's divine beauty and God's divine providence, God's divine power. So you can look in creation, and when you're moved by music or you're moved by, by looking at a mountain or you're moved by some, something beautiful in the world, obviously we understand the world's a fallen place as well, but all the good things we see and, and the beautiful things we see, that's a divine reflection of God. It's a divine reflection of God. And so we see, therefore, because God is a relational being, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect harmonious relationship, and that's the foundation of everything, that therefore everything that emerges, everything that has been created, looks back to that as the highest ideal and the greatest value that you could have, that you want to be known, you want to belong, you want to be loved, you want to be cherished. You want to love as well. You want to be in a relationship. You want to have a family. You want to be part of a family. You want to be known by other people. You don't want to be isolated. This is the way the world is, and it's this way because it's from God. So Peter says, blessed be our God and Father. When Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, how did he start? The famous Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father. Those two words, our, it's communal. We share this Father, this we share the Father, the same Father. 
in the Gospels time and again. God is, he is referred to as Father, but specifically Heavenly Father, over and over again. You see that phrase, Heavenly Father. When Jesus tells parables, Jesus was known for telling many parables. In some of his parables, there's a father figure. Every time that Jesus uses a father figure in his parables, he's talking about God. It's a direct picture of who God is. Apostle John, in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he, he writes this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. Marina expressed this so articulately, didn't she? She was so articulate in using big fancy words like specter and all kind of cool words. And I was like, wow, she just speaks so well. But she, she, she communicated this longing, this longing to be known by and close to her father. The field of psychology tells us that this is a hard wiring that we have. You, you cannot get rid of this impulse, this desire to be known and to be accepted by your father. When you think about the power of a father figure in your life, or your actual father or a father figure, you think about the natural authority that's embodied by a father figure. When that power and that authority is, is received as a light and loving touch, when it's received as genuine interest and attention and care, when it's received as security, all the things, all the positive things that we know it should be received as, when that happens, something magical happens to us on the inside. Now, if you don't know that feeling, you don't know what I'm talking about, well, I'm not surprised because it's so rare to get it. And it's very difficult to cope, to learn, we learn all kinds of coping mechanisms, but it's very difficult to cope with the absence of that feeling. Now, before I get canceled, let me just say very clearly, all children need mothers as well, all right? So just in the same way, if we look at the Trinity, and we would say, well, we wouldn't say, oh, yeah, get rid of Jesus, get rid of the Holy Spirit, just need the Father, right? We would never say anything like that. That's ridiculous. Again, we would never, you know, that's, that's not going to fly on a Mother's Day card. Mothers are essential, essential. I suppose if you have gone with one or the, without one parent, that's probably the one you crave the most that you're missing. That's that, that human desire to have both parents. That's the way God's designed it to be. The one that you go without is the one you, you crave the most. But we're talking about God being our father today, and there's something powerful that we've got to understand about accepting this truth of a divine father, the originator of all things. You, know, you can technically have a biological father, and your father could be present in your life, but it can be a bad father. So you might, you might, you might, might have a... That, that can also be a, a, a somewhat of a torturous thing of craving that fatherhood and that fatherliness, but then it's, it's, it should be there, but it's not there. Think of, you think about single parents, you think about single mothers, and should be honored and, and greatly respected for trying to fill both of those roles. Also for single fathers as well, trying to fill both roles. Great respect for the challenge of that. 
But even healthy two-parent families, even the healthiest family, are still the healthiest mom and dad are still going to wound their kids somehow because we're all imperfect. You're going to wound your kids somehow. You're going to we all damage our kids somehow. And there's never enough attention. There's never enough love. Never enough care. Never enough wisdom. We there's always going to be some conflict, some disappointment. And Marina put it so well. She said, "Adults, they're such hypocrites." I think we all kind of nodded our heads at that. The problem is when you grow up to be an adult. That's the problem. That's when the problems arise. You rise. Oh no! Oh no! It's me too. It's me too. Parents put all kind of pressures and expectations on their kids that they themselves are not willing to live up to and never did live up to. We're such hypocrites. Understanding that God is our Father, that He is our true Father, understanding that is the only way that we can actually understand our own identity. There's no other way to understand who we are than to first receive and understand this principle, this truth, this eternal truth, that there is a, a Father who has made all things that we made in His image, made to relate to Him, and we, not, we have to know Him in order to know ourselves and to be found by Him. One of the things that we get confused over, which, again, Marina so well articulated, is we confuse our relationship with our earthly fathers with our relationship to God. And over the years... I've discovered this more and more in my own life, and I've seen this in the life of other people, that, so if you imagine, if you, if you, let's say, you know somebody, or you are somebody who had a loving father, a present father, who was pretty decent, you know, no one's perfect, but, but a good, loving, caring, present father, then it's probably not too hard to imagine or to believe that God is a loving, present, caring father. That's, that's a very small gap to, to bridge. You say, oh yeah, I, could, I can believe that. But if you've had an absent father, a harsh, demanding, abusive father, then my guess is, in my experience, that it's more typical to struggle and to, to then think, well, God is probably absent, aggressive, abusive. If you had a father you couldn't trust, it might be really hard for you to trust God. It might be. Maybe this isn't true for every single person, but i got a hunch that this is true for most people, for a lot of people. We've got to get to the place. We have to get to the place that Marina got to, where she was able to realize my relationship with God is the most important thing I need, and it's being held back by the damage I received from my relationship with my, from my earthly father, and I have to differentiate those things. Think about it like this. When a any authority, but especially a father-type figure, when they pronounce something over us, when they say something over us, that carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? Isn't that powerful? When somebody who has authority... See, we're hardwired to believe authority figures. Especially, this is so funny, if you learn that somebody is credentialed, and the higher their credentials are, the more credentials they've got, the more you're just instantly willing just to believe them no matter what they say, just because of their, they've got special letters after their name or something, because, well, they must be smart, they must know. This is the power that authority has over us, that an authority figure, they pronounce something, whether positive or negative, we receive it, we believe it. We can't help it. It's in our nature. We've got to learn to be more discerning about that, by the way. 
Not everyone that has a title actually has the authority that they claim to have. They did a social experiment on this to actually to prove this point. And uh, a man who was just wearing a T-shirt and jeans was standing on the corner of a very busy street. And before the light changed, he crossed the street. And the test was to see if people would follow him. And nobody followed him because everyone was like, this guy's an idiot. Obviously, he's going to get killed. We're not going to follow him. They took the same man and he put a suit on. He went back to the same corner, and they repeated this experiment over and over and over again to test to make sure it worked. And he crossed the street before the lights changed, and people followed him. The reason is because of perceived authority. People thought, just by the fact that this guy wearing a suit, he must know what he's doing. He's an important person. He looks like a well-to-do successful person, we can follow him, surely. That just shows you how blind we are, with the blind following the blind, right? Now, I, I, I was wonder, wondering about this social experiment, thinking, this is probably too dangerous to try. But if they had done a third attempt and dressed the man in MC Hammer pants, I just wonder what would have happened. It, what, what would have happened, you know? But it would have been chaos, right? Chaos. The, the people would have broken out into to gospel, hip-hop moves, and, and who knows, they wouldn't have been able to control it. But we, we'll see, right? The authority on, on gospel hip-hop. People, we appeal to higher authority all the time. So teachers will say to a student, if you don't change your behavior, I'll send you to the principal. Kids will say, if you don't leave me alone, I'll get my big brother. People will say, if you don't get off my property, I'll call the police. Or if you don't back down, I'm going to call my lawyers. Or I'll call the Ghostbusters. Something, whatever, I'm going to appeal to some higher authority. And whether we like it or not, we cannot deny that the most natural and highest authority and most influential authority that God has designed in our lives are our fathers. They are our fathers. And in, in our culture, the, the anger and the hatred against patriarchy is a direct resistance to God's fathering of us. That's what it comes down to. There's a mysterious influence that father figures have in our lives. When our kids were little, uh, my wife, if they, you know, our kids were acting out, and my, my wife would, uh, would give them a consequence. And, and she's, she's, a, she's, a, she's an amazing parent, and so she's very consistent and, and, and very strong, and most of the time that would work. But in certain occasions, if, if it didn't work, you know, she's at home with the kids when they were younger especially, and then... She's giving them a consequence. It's not working. She's like, well, when your father gets home or when your father's done, he's going he's gonna to do it. So then I would step in and give them the same consequence and it would work. What is all that about? It's revealing something divine, something that God has made. I don't know how it works. Actually, all dads know this and future dads will give you, let you know a little secret here. There's a, we actually have a name for this, secret influence that fathers have in children's lives. It's called candy. No, that's a terrible parent. Don't do that. That's a terrible parent idea. God has the highest source of authority in our lives, and so He can pronounce over us who we are. He can define who we are. He can validate who we are. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God is our Father, but He's not weak and insecure and fallen and broken and sinful like our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers. Are, you, 
as you grow up as a kid, you get to a, you know, the age where you realize, like, wow, I thought my parents were perfect. And then you're like, no, they're really not perfect anymore. And then, then you get to a certain age and you're like, I think I'm in charge of this family now. Um, that, that happens as well to people. I stole that from Nate Bargetsy. Sorry, that's a, I just, to, just to clarify, I stole that from a comedian, that line. All, all, all other jokes are original to me or my uh, Irish friend Shannon who helps me out with jokes. So God is time and again mentioned to be our father, and he's not like fallen fathers. He's a perfect parent, so he can perfectly parent us, perfectly father us and validate us. But because he's the source, the highest source, and the, the original source of all power and authority, when he says who we are, it's really who we are. He can guide us and, sec- and give us security like nobody else. Jesus goes as far as this in Matthew 23, verse 9, Jesus says this. This is powerful. He says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Now, this is hyperbole. If you don't understand Jewish speech from a couple of thousand years ago, you know, they use a lot of hyperbole. So Jesus, when he says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You know, he's not in, Jesus is not into mutilation, right? Not, not into self-harm. So it's, it's hyper, if you don't understand the, the way the language works, it's hyperbole. So he's not saying you can't have a father or call somebody father. He's actually responding to the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees of the day, the people who were so pompous, they would use authority titles to lord their power over people. And he's saying, don't, well, yeah, firstly, don't act like you're God in somebody's life because there's only one God in heaven. There's only one Father in heaven. But also, don't treat somebody else like they're the Father, the Heavenly Father, because there's only one of those. He's the source of all things. This is hyperbole. And so Peter wants us to know this is the reason why we bless God, our Father. We bless Him, and we give Him the reason to bless Him in the second part of this verse, in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, according, this is the reason, it is according, we're to bless him, because it's according to his great mercy that he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is one of the clearest distinctions between earthly fathers and, and heavenly, the heavenly father is mercy. If you, if you were to say, you know, to, to people like, give me like three or four words to describe fathers, what words would you pick to describe fathers? Would mercy be one of them? I don't know. I don't, th- I don't think it'd be a very common choice for a lot of people that you say, yeah, fathers, oh yeah, they're, they're the merciful bunch. This is how God is so different. The heavenly father is so different that he is so merciful. And we're told that his mercy causes us to be born again. Now, this is a phrase that Jesus coined. Jesus came up with this idea that to enter heaven, to experience the kingdom of God, you have to die and be reborn. You have to be born a second time. It's kind of like a, when your computer crashes and then turns back on. It's like that except for your soul. And, or even better, actually, a better illustration is you buy a new phone and you got to go through the transfer process, the painful transfer process where you're like, who was texting me and who's called me and I don't know what's happening in my life because my life is on this device. And then, but you transfer everything over. All the photos go over. All the contacts go over. All the text messages go over. All the apps go over. Everything goes over. So, okay, I transferred it, but Wow, it's a new device. It's faster and more glamorous. It's got more cameras. It's got 20 cameras on it now. It's amazing. Who even needs 20 cameras? But it's amazing. And it's been upgraded. So that's, that's kind of an image of the work, the born-again work of Jesus in us, that we're still us. In essence, we're still 
the same person that he made at the very beginning when we were first born, but now we've been souped up, we've been upgraded, like you wouldn't believe, radically transformed, that we look and sound quite different, but, but the same still, but, but different somehow. And, and Peter is unashamedly saying that this rebirth you experience, it gives you a living hope. And if you don't know the Christian hope, it's such a joyful thing to live every day with hope that if I die today, I'm with God. If I suffer today, he's going to fix it one day. What hope? is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. But this hope only comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, it's easy to believe that Jesus died. Most people believe Jesus was a historical figure, and most people believe that everyone dies. So, put those two things together. It's not hard to believe. You don't really need any faith to believe that Jesus died. Everyone dies. He died. He's dead. Or he was dead, at least. Put it that way. The trick to the Christian faith is, or the, the challenge to the Christian faith is, to find, to find the faith to say that he didn't remain dead. He came back again. This is not a metaphor. It's what Peter's saying. Peter was an eyewitness to it that he came back from death. I know that there are intellectual barriers. I know there's doubts, strong doubts that people can have about the resurrection of Jesus. But I, I, I do wonder with the influence of, of media in our day and age, if people might struggle more to believe that Jesus just wasn't a zombie or something. I think that's more of a, a temptation that some people might struggle with uh, nowadays. nowadays. But the, the belief in God is the same as to believe in the miracles of God, and especially the, the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. There's no difference. If you believe that God is real, there is, it's illogical, therefore, to say that Jesus can't be raised from the dead. If there is a God, anything is possible. Make sense? If there's not a God, then we're all a bunch of fools. Right? Can we believe that? We're a bunch of fools. But... It takes just as much faith to believe in all worldviews. It's the same level of faith, actually. But if you, if you accept God, and I do, and I don't, don't think I'm foolish for accepting that, God is real, therefore all miracles are real. Therefore, all miracles are possible, I should say. Not all of them are real. We believe the ones in the Bible are, especially that Jesus rose from the dead. Why did Jesus die in order to be raised? Why did he die? He had to die to pay the penalty for our sin. Let's not pretend that we're so innocent. Let's not pretend that we're not at fault. The Bible calls us sinners. Sometimes it's not very nice to us. It calls us sinners. And it doesn't just say we're people that make mistakes. It says that we do evil things and that we have evil intentions, that we lie and we cheat and we judge and we hate and we harm. And sometimes we like it most of the time. Actually, the reason you do anything bad is because you like it, because you want to do it. I know that's true of me. That's the way we are. We, we know it's wrong, but it's our nature. It's in our nature. You can't help but live out your nature. You're always going to, the creature acts the way the creature's going to act. You're going to live out your nature, which is why you have to die. The only way you can be changed and live differently is if you die, and then you're resurrected to be something different, something else. And this is the work of Christ. This is why Jesus died. He died so that we would go into the grave with him, and all of our sinful, evil Shameful things would be buried with him in the grave. And that as he then rises from the dead, our sin is left behind in that place and we resurrect with him. And so when we place our confidence in him, we're reborn. We get a fresh start. And it's a permanent change. It's a permanent identity change. You know, the world, there's many identities that the world tells you that you can 
that you can take on or you can create for yourself. I've been trying to get my kids for a while now to call me Admiral. And uh, because I just think it'd be so boss if, you know, my kids are, we're, our family's around other people and my kids are like, yes, Admiral, no, Admiral, certainly Admiral, whatever. You know, I just think that'd be really, really mad cool. Um, also, people might think I'm a little bit of a freak for that, but it would also be a moment kind of cool. But my kids won't do it. My kids won't do it because they're smart. You know, they're smart. They know, <laughs> they know I'm not an admiral. No matter how much I want to be one, they know I'm not one. And the world, the world says you can look inside yourself and that you can, you can pull out any identity you want. You can find yourself just by looking in. That's a lie. God's word says the only way you can get it is to discover it outside yourself from the source that made you, that is your father, that defines you and knows you better than anyone else could ever know you because he made you for a purpose. If you invented a machine, you invented something, you give it a name, you give it a purpose, it's got a reason to exist. And it's got that because you're the inventor, you're the creator, you made it for something. It's the same, we can't be something other than what we, God has made us to be. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who you've known this. This has been Christian knowledge for you. This has been head knowledge. Like, yeah, you know, God's a father. Yeah, okay, got an identity. Maybe you haven't experienced it. The way to come in and experience it is you've got to die. You've got to die. It's, 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 it's a humbling. It's what Marina talked about it so well in her video. It's, it's, that, it's that place of saying, I've got to come to the end of myself I've got, to be willing, I've got to be willing to trust all the words. I've got to be willing to lay down all my pride, all the things that I'm trying to hold on to so much that I think make me something I think I need to be secure and safe. I have to give them all up. That's the exchange. I die to all of that, and I turn to Christ, and he gives me life and a living hope, resurrection power forevermore. Ultimately, it's turning to God and saying, you are my father. If you're spiritually dead today, you can come alive in Jesus. I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you want to turn to Jesus today, I want to ask you, pray this prayer in your heart or pray it under your breath, whether you're joining us online or you're in person. Follow along with me with this prayer if you're ready to turn your life over, to die to all of that stuff and to give your life to Jesus. God, here I am. Help me. I'm here with my shame. I'm here with my sin. Forgive me. Clean me. Set me free. Help me live for you. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. Accept me into your family. Empower me with your spirit. And help me enjoy and share your grace. Amen. Amen. If that's you today, something you must do, you must do it. You must tell another Christian that you prayed that prayer today. And also I want to encourage you to be baptized in water.
do that soon. We can help you with that. That's what people who follow Jesus, they get baptized. And it's great. It's really great. Take that step.